I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Oh, this is great. I got someone here who I've only known from conferences and we play together and I just love her. It's Dr. Mary Alice BFX Curran. So glad you're I, here. I'm so happy to join you. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I I see you, you smile, I mean, hug each other. Finally, I get to talk to you. You know, at conferences, it's like uh, like an escalator. Someone's going up, someone's going down. It's a quick hug. And so this is just a great opportunity to, to really just completely be present with you. I'm oh. so excited. Oh, thank you so much. But I'm going to tell a little bit about you. Um, a little. Gosh, you have such a big resume here. Let's see if I can shorten it a little bit, and then we can go into them. So Mary Alice had served as an associate professor a middle school teacher, a principal, and a library media specialist. Well, I'm going to say there's even more. (laughs) That's a lot right there. What's cool is I was a middle school teacher and an adjunct professor. We started talking earlier and found out there's a lot, we have a lot in common. But she's a researcher, a keynote, international speaker, and a TEDx youth speaker. We'll have to talk about that too. Perfect. That is wonderful. And what I really love is that Mary Alice is a pioneer in digital citizenship and is founder and executive director of the Digital Citizenship Institute. And that's big. So welcome, Mary Alice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be with you right now. Oh, this is great. So I always ask everyone to tell us a little bit about their background, where they grew up, and a little bit about you. Want to start? Perfect. Well, I am, anybody that knows me knows I'm really proud that I'm from Boston, except I want to say for the last 14 years, I've lived in Connecticut, but I still have my 617 telephone number, my cell phone number, (laughs) just in the event I ever get to go back home. You know, I can click my heels and go back home. But my my, my story really begins uh, outside of Boston. And I, I really identify with that like location, um, you know, when I was growing up in the seventies, uh, depending on like your neighborhood, you were connected to a parish and that idea of community has always, it's been instilled in me. Uh, and I, I think that that has a lot to say with how I've progressed and choices that I've made in my life definitely stem from my own background and my, and my, really my own childhood. So you grew up in Boston or outside of Boston. Yep. Outside, outside of Boston. Yes. Oh, it's so beautiful. Where, where in, outside? Uh, in a town called Winchester. So northwest of the city, about 15, 20 minutes from Boston. So how long did you live there? I lived there until, oh my gosh, um, I was 30 probably. And then in Winchester. And then I, I moved to the south shore of Boston. I moved to Wilbraham. And then it wasn't until I got married that I moved to Connecticut. And you would have thought I moved like 3,000 miles away from, even though it's the bordering, a bordering state, like it was a big move to Connecticut. And uh, so I've been here in Connecticut for 14 years, the past 14 years. And Connecticut's beautiful. <laughs> well, yes, it, it has its own beauty, except those like wide open spaces. Madagascar, that movie, 
when they were trying to break out of the, the zoo. Where should we go? Well, I heard Connecticut has wide open spaces. I mean, it is beautiful, those rolling hills of Connecticut. But there's something to be said about houses, cheek to jowl, on street parking. I love, I, in fact, I would give up uh, a garage. I'd never have a garage again because people hit like a little button. You know, they, they come home, they hit the button, the, the, the car goes into the garage and the people disappear. I'm like, where are all the people? So I would much rather, <laughs> with that sense of community, I would, I'd be waking up extra early to shovel your car out of your spot just for that sense of connecting with people. So that's the only thing I really miss in Connecticut is that there, you don't see people as much as I, I saw them back at home. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. It's a little button. They push the little button and then they're gone. <laughs> they're gone. Where are the people? Right. <laughs> oh, that you're just making me laugh. I just can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you went to school in, in Winchester, though. So what was it like for you to be a student there? I, well, I went uh, K-12 uh, through the Winchester Public Schools, and I was a horrible student. Hmm. And uh, I did not, I was a failure as a student, completely. And I had parents that believed in me and told me how smart I was and, you know, I could do anything that I wanted. And, you know, when you're young, you believe, you, you think that your parents were saying that because they have to say that because they're your parents. And I really bought into what the teachers and even, you know, my high school, college, like high school counselor you know, told me I was not college material. When I was probably in the uh, first grade, I was diagnosed. And that is the worst word in the world. It is like that to me, it's like a four letter word, diagnosed. And they actually told my parents, I used the R word when I was in the first grade. And uh, my parents did some outside testing, did a lot of outside testing and finally found out that I was dyslexic. And I feel like there was a lot of education that my parents did for the school system because nobody in the school system really knew about dyslexia in the early seventies. And so I just never fit in as a student. Like I can even remember like there was a, a test in elementary school every Friday in math and the math test was up on the board, the chalkboard. And then we had a blank piece of paper and we needed to transcribe like the problems on the board. And then every Monday you would rush in and you would see if your test was on the bulletin board. And now I can look back and I can, and I think, I wonder if he just ever, if that math teacher ever just corrected my math, if I had my math right, but guaranteed, I never transcribed correctly. Like my, my question was never what was the question up on the board. And those examples of just not fitting in and always failing, I mean, really, and feeling like a failure definitely has defined and for the majority of my life I've hid I didn't want anybody to know because it's embarrassing and you feel like you are that diagnosis and not until I became a connected educator and I was teaching teachers where I felt like I needed to be a role model about you know we need to take risks we need to it's about the process not the product I thought I'm kind of getting comfortable I need to take a risk and that's when I came out and started blogging as the dyslexic professor. And since then, I can't tell you how proud I am that I'm an untraditional learner. I have a similar story, so we're going to talk about it later. Because it's really amazing when you're in a school system that doesn't understand um, how we're all unique, we're all different, we all have some issues. And dyslexia was never really diagnosed then, right? It, 
wasn't, right? Really? I mean, you didn't no. find out until you were older. Right. And I, you know, like I can tell you, I had to, this is by, well, it's junior, junior high, but middle school for all practical purposes. And I remember I had to go to like special classes and the only way to get there was down this corridor. And the only people that ever went down those, that corridor were like, you know, I'm doing like the air quotes here, those kids. And I didn't want, you know, it's important. You get, you, when you're in junior high or middle school, you know, you're a young adolescent, you go to school to see and be seen. And uh, you know, I, I did not want to go down that corridor. And I remember literally hiding in the bathroom every period and, and kind of putting on a comedy routine for friends. So I'd always be late for class. So no one would see if I had to go down that hallway. And every single day in the seventh grade, I had a detention. And I look back now and I think, where were all the adults in my life in that school? Couldn't they see the pattern that I wasn't trying to be the class clown? Like I wasn't doing this on purpose. I was really doing this to save face. I mean, my parents got it. I can tell you, my mom, this is at the same time where I, I begged my parents to get me out of those services. And by middle school, I never had any extra services from the public school. But my mom, um, for Christmas one year, I got business cards in my stocking and they said, Mary Alice's puppet shows. And, you know, God bless my mom, because this is really what saved me at a really awkward stage in my life. We put an ad in the newspaper and I put on, I, I, I grew up with puppets in the house. My mom uh, traveled for work and I had puppets from all around the world. And so in 1979, I started my own business in a time in my life that was horrible in school. And I went and I performed puppet shows for children's parties. And it made me unique. It brought out my gifts and talents. And it was like a life raft, really, honestly, at a, at a really awkward stage in my life. How long did you do that? That sounds so I mean, I, I continued doing puppet shows uh, all through college. I mean, I could still, if I wanted to, pick up. I still have all of my puppets. I have my puppet theaters. I have hand puppets. I have marionettes. It was, yeah. And so that's, I feel like also when you look at the intersections of your life, how many things when you connect the dots come back to, oh my gosh, now I've done something entrepreneurial. When I did something entrepreneurial as, you know, a young adolescent, it all comes full circle. It's really, it's fascinating. Well, I'll have to get a picture of your puppet show, at least to put on the post that we put together, because that is amazing. And I mean, when I think about you becoming a teacher, you went, became a middle school teacher? Right, right. I look at the most awkward time of my life, <laughs> and I, that's where I become a teacher, is at that age, wow. really. So I, I, and I really, at the time, even though I didn't tell anybody I was dyslexic, when I first, this was in 1993, I took my first job. I didn't tell anybody, but I wanted, I wanted to make sure no other student ever felt the way that I felt. And so when you think about gifts and talents, Every single one of our students comes to our classroom with gifts and talents. They're all completely unique. And it's up to us to really bring those out in every single student. And so that really goes back to, you know, my passion about personalized learning. I might not have had it. I could be really resentful about what had happened to me and some lost opportunities. But I've always looked at that glass, not as half empty, but completely full. My, my cup runneth over. I'm sitting here and just smiling from ear to ear because all of us have struggles. 
And it depends on how we deal with those times and moments in our lives that really impact us. What you did is you turned it around, especially in middle school. I mean, as a middle school teacher myself, I found that was the age where you lost kids. You know, they, they just feel like you said, they want to be seen, they want to be heard, and some feel so invisible. And like you did, you hid. Right. Oh, I did. And I became a class clown. And I, I think that my personality, I think people make this assumption that I'm an extrovert and I'm actually not. I would say I've had a lot of conversations with Sarah Thomas about this. I really am an ambivert. I can rise to the occasion, but it zaps me. You know, I, I think that uh, I learned how to put on this persona so that it was like a, a mechanism to protect myself. You know, like if you watch me my entire career, you'll never see me read from a script ever because my throat wants to close. I remember in school, you know, the teacher would say every other paragraph and I would be counting how many kids before me in the row, how many paragraphs, and then, you know, trying to practice my paragraph before it was my turn and then missing absolutely everything that anybody said in class. And so to this day, you know, certain things that I, I learned early on for survival and I still use it for survival, but it's not, I'm, I'm definitely not an extrovert without a doubt. I'm not. Well, it's funny. Um, I'm feeling like I'm living my life through you because this is exactly, people think I'm an extrovert, but I feel just like you do. One hate scripts, but I used them and I hated it. It was like the same thing you said. And I'm the kind of, this is why I'm loving doing the podcast. Because I don't know where you're going to go. I mean, I don't know what you're going to say. And it's like a real conversation. If I had scripted it all out, I think it wouldn't be as good. And so... You know, I I totally... I mean, I am comfortable with not knowing. I'm much more comfortable not knowing. And I also... It um, allows you to be completely present with someone. Uh You know? And I, I really... When I am in a crowd... Sometimes I really, it's just too many people. I would much rather, like how I, we had opened about the escalator. Someone's coming up, someone's going down. You give a quick hug, ha-ha. But I would, I much prefer a situation where we're one-on-one or we're in small groups and you can have really meaningful conversation that's, you know, deliberate. And that's how I feel. I do, I do like uh, putting on parties and having things, but when I have too many people, it's just... I mean, I can feel how I, I feel what you're saying because I know I I've been there. So we're going to see each other at ISTE where there's twenty thousand people, but we're going to pull aside and we're going to have more time to talk to each other. And the idea that you share about being dyslexic, there's so many people that were but didn't know it and found out later in life, and that you wrote about it. So how did you get to? you know, writing about it and then being a professor, did you explain that there as a professor? Well, you know, so I I didn't say anything to anybody. I stopped services. My parents stopped services when I was in middle school. And when I went off to college, I went to the University of Arizona and they have a program called SALT, the Strategic Alternative Learning Techniques Program. And I didn't go to the University of Arizona because of the program. I went to just kind of be different, to try, you know, everybody in, in Winchester, I felt like was going in New England. I wanted to do, I wanted to be something, I wanted to do something different. So I did, I went, I went to Tucson 
And I did join this program and I swear that that is where I honed in on like my skills on how to really bring out the best in, in, on all of my gifts and my qualities. And so I am, but I still didn't say anything. I, I didn't say anything outside of that SALT program. And then I went to graduate school. I didn't, I didn't ask for any extra time for the GREs or anything like that. I remember actually my grades, if you ever looked at my transcripts, I am not a reflection, does not reflect who I am at all. But I remember applying for graduate school and they looked at my transcript. I came in for the interview and they said, it just doesn't match. And I could have had the opportunity to say, well, and use it kind of as a crutch. But I, I said, I'm not my transcript. I'm much more. But they put me on academic probation when I first started graduate school. And they made it clear that if I couldn't cut the grades, that I wasn't going to, you know, I was going to have to walk away. But by that time, I feel like maturity set in and like I figured out my strengths on really how to how to succeed. And from from graduate school on, um, I've never I've never looked back. I took that first teaching job in 1993. I still didn't say anything, but I remember there were times because I would have like parent teacher conferences and I could see myself struggling as as that student. And I could see these parents desperate for hope. And I would come out and I would reveal to that student, to those parents. And I would always do teacher, teacher parent conferences with the student there. Cause I always was like, that never made any sense to me that it was just, I mean, why aren't they an integral part of their learning process? And then, but still, then I became a principal. I didn't tell anybody when I was interviewing for that. Even when I went to apply, I did my doctoral work at Boston college. I think I did that because you know, my high school counselor told me I wasn't going to amount to much and don't apply to college. So I feel like I didn't need a PhD, but I love to learn, even though it wasn't easy for me. I do. I've always loved to learn. I think I, I did the PhD because someone said I couldn't. And also for family reasons, my, my, both my parents went to BC. I wanted to wear my dad's doctoral robes. Um, my mom said there was an easier way. You could put them on. We could have a parade. We'll all clap, you know? And I said, no, I, I want to do it. I, I want to wear dad's robes. It's important to me. And, uh, but when I took the job in higher ed, I didn't tell anybody I was dyslexic. And then I had a graduate student way before her time. Her name is Tracy Mercier. She used to invite me into her classroom. I remember the first time I ever got Googled. It was her third graders that were like, how do you spell your name? We're going to see if you're making socially responsible decisions. And I remember <gasps> I never Googled myself. I had no idea what was going to show up. But her third graders, I thought, what happens when they go to the fourth grade, the fifth grade, middle school, high school, come to my college classroom. What am I doing to meet their needs? And so when I became connected, that's when I thought I need to take some risk. I need to walk my walk, talk my talk. And that's when I, I came out and I was like, I'm never going to be ashamed again. And ah. I've never, I've never looked back since that moment of saying that I'm proud. In fact, there was a tweet out today. I saw, and then I put, you know, proud to be dyslexic. I would never have said that prior to being a connected educator. But it helps so many others because if you were quiet about it, just imagine how many out there are afraid to say anything. And it's knowing that you're, you're able to succeed or do all of these things that you've done really gives people hope. You know, because they, I mean, just being told that you'll never be anything, 
you'll never amount to anything. It's a terrible thing to tell anyone. And you, oh, you're, you'll love this. You'll love this. So what I did, uh, when I, every semester I would, I never had great grades for my transcript either, but I would at least Xerox my transcript as an undergrad. And I would write a note to that guidance counselor to say, thank you for all of your years of encouragement and support. I thought this would be of interest to you. I did that as an undergrad. I sent ah. that as a grad. I did that when I was in my doctoral program because, you know, people need to know that their words really do matter, you know? And if I had ever just listened to my guidance counselor, I would have believed it. So a lot of it, I have to say, goes back to my parents. And that's when you realize too, why I wanted to go into education. Not everybody has parents that are going to support you. And all you really need in life is one person. Mm-hmm. It'd be better if it's more than one, but you just need one person that believes in you. And there's some kids that don't have that. So if a teacher can do that, absolutely. I mean, you know, if we can just listen and, and take time to get to know, I mean, if someone could have just gotten on their knees and sat, <laughs> looked at you and see you, who you really are. Uh, but I don't think you'd be as who you are today. <laughs> Without the I mean? struggles, right? I think the struggles made you want to make a difference and go into middle school and, and do what you're doing. Uh, your story is amazing. Okay, we have another story I have to ask you about because <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Your Mary Alice BFX Curran. What is that? What is BFX? <laughs> okay, so it's well, it stands for Bridget Francis Xavier. And Bridget's my middle name. Francis Xavier happens to be my confirmation name. But when I was in graduate school, you had to submit to paperwork to graduate and you had to send in a check, which I did. And then I hear back and they say, you submitted your paperwork in too early. So I resubmitted my paperwork. Then I get a phone call that says, well, you have to pay. And I said, well, I've already paid. You've deposited my check. And they were like, well, sorry. It clearly said that, you know, if it had to be on time. And so I asked to speak to their supervisor and I was going to boycott graduation. That's when my family said, okay, this is ridiculous. Like, even though it's just a piece of paper, you can't go back and get it. We'll pay. My dad was like, I'll pay. And I was like, dad, it's the principal. If I'm paying double for, for this diploma, I'm going to have him read my entire name. So since <laughs> 1992, that was the first college diploma with Mary Alice Bridget Francis Xavier Curran. I had them, I didn't have them read out BFX. They read out the whole thing. And um, I got my first teacher bag, my LL Bean. I feel like that was a classic here in New England. Get your first teacher LL Bean bag with the MBFXC. My first, my first job is in a sixth grade classroom, my first position. I remember the kids going, What are those? Are those like Roman numerals? What are those? And ever since, I've just stuck with it. And people will ask me, Are you a nun? Is that a degree? What is that? And I, I also think it's a great idea when you are looking for a job, if there's something like, you know, you've got a unique name or there's something, people want to talk about it. So I've always, it's on my license now, it's on credit cards, it's on all my documentation. Well, That's a whole story. I like it. Well, I had to ask because I didn't know, I wasn't sure what it was. So, you know, Roman numerals or what were they? Yeah, right, right. So I feel like it started with my teaching career and it kind of just, it's has stuck. And my poor husband, when we got married, I had him say the whole thing at the altar. And then he turned and he looked at everybody and he went, phew, like he got it right. 
<laughs> you are so funny. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, your husband hit, sounds like a doll. I mean, it sounds like your story with, and oh, you, you have sorry, a good gonna, life. I don't know if you know this, but my husband's deaf. No. So when you think about being an untraditional learner, and I was never, people were like, are you nervous about dating somebody when we were dating, you know, about communication? No, I was never worried about it. Like I just, in, a, in my husband would say that instead of calling it a disability, he says it's just a serious inconvenience. Um, and I remember, I remember when we first, I said to my family, you know, my uncle had said, actually, what a lucky man. He can tune you out and he can't get into any trouble. This is like the perfect marriage. But I feel like, for our son to have parents that are very unique. It's just another role model um, for our son going forward that everybody does have gifts and talents. Uh, so um, I grew up with people, I grew up in Maryland and had a family, a deaf family next door. So it was really interesting for me to learn how to sign and even went to Gallaudet College to do some work there because I was really interested in it. Tell me, how did you communicate? So my husband grew up oral. Oh. And that first date, that first blind date with a deaf man, he held on to my every word. And I was like, this guy digs me. But <laughs> I didn't realize that that first time he has to look at everybody that way. But he, even if I were to sign to my husband, he would speak back. So uh -huh. he, my husband is fluent in sign language, but he, he doesn't sign unless someone's deaf. If, unless someone, that is the way that they communicate. Uh -huh. um, he, he said, he's explained it that it's like you don't belong in either the hearing world or the deaf world. It's a very mm. strange place to be, but it's a decision that his family made, you know, to, to bring him up oral. And so. Wow. Well, so what's his name? Sean. Sean. And your son. Your son is amazing. <laughs> well, he's the he's the he's the true introvert in the family. Really? Um, oh. which, yes, yes. And he actually is a fabulous um, traditional learner. He does really well. We're in a in our school district right now. I wish he broke the rules a little bit more, but he is a he does not struggle academically at all, which is, I, my husband and I have had this conversation. We're happy about it, but we're also a little sad because all of our struggles personally have defined us. I know he'll have his own struggles. They'll be different than what we had, but he he's excels very well in the classroom. And I would never have thought my son would have gotten involved in my work. I would never have consciously involved him in my work. It happened very naturally. Um, when I was, uh, I was on the tenure track um, at the University of St. Joe's. And sometimes when I, the babysitter canceled, he came to class with me. And then my husband would pick him up and, and take him home. But he would, he loved it. He loved being on that college campus. It was a, like a home away from home. And all the students really took to him. And the first time we put on a DigSit Summit on my campus, I got up to give the closing remarks and he followed me up on stage. And I was like, do you have... <laughs> I was so surprised. Do you have something that you want to say? And he nodded, yes. And so I basically fed him because I he said he wanted to tell his blogging story. So I fed him and he responded. And then he leaned into the microphone and he put his hand up and he goes, Thank you very much. And from that <laughs> moment on, he was we he we were publicly, you know, 
known as a mother and son team. We were a mother and son team privately at home, but I would never have thought it would have ever been something that just because of his personality, I would never have imagined that we would have had the journey we've had. Well, he's amazing. I met him and he's amazing. What's his name? So we, everybody can hear. So it's Curran, which is, I know crazy because some people will be like, is he Curran Curran? And then he's heard me say this enough that he'll say, I'm not Duran Duran. I have a different last name. So, uh, I kept my, I kept my name when I got married and I didn't think that being a mother was even a a possibility at my age and surprise, surprise. Um, we were blessed with a child and my husband at the time said, I, I think that we should name this baby Curran, whether it's a girl or a boy. And I didn't really think it out, Mary Alice Curran with my child Curran, but lo and behold, um, I could change my name now, but it just makes people laugh about when he, when we say that people assume that he's current, current, but his last name is D, D-double-E. He's just amazing. Um, and so maybe we should talk about the uh, how you got into the digital citizenship and then started this institute. I mean, because now he's so involved, let's kind of tell your story and then how he got more involved in it. You know, it actually started with uh, Tracy Mercier, the teacher, um, the grad student that I had and her third graders about getting me connected. And at the, around the same time, um, there were a lot of teen suicides happening around cyberbullying. Each one affected me greatly. But one in particular was Tyler Clemente. He was a college freshman at Rutgers. And his, I don't know if you remember the story, but his college roommate had privately recorded a romantic encounter. And, and Tyler took his life. And, you know, this was all kind of happening simultaneously. I'm relatively a new mother. Um, I am in this work. I actually, when I was hired at the University of St. Joe's, I was hired to build up the middle school program um, at the graduate level. And then the state of Connecticut eliminated the license and I had to reinvent myself. And I was already going in the direction of ed tech, but ed tech for middle school, and then I just had to expand my, my repertoire. And I saw just like, you know, at the beginning of that story, it was all very reactive. You know, the technology was so fast that we weren't, we were so far behind. The kids seemed to be further ahead than we were. There were all these sensational headlines, especially around um, teen suicide. But Tyler Clemente, that moment, I realized that could be my son, right? I was just a relatively new mother at the time. That could be my son. And the It Gets Better campaign came out in full force to send this message, which was wonderful to let kids know it gets better. But it got me mad. Like I was mad about that message because why do we have to wait for it to get better? What can I do as one person right now to start to make it better? I want to give that message to kids. And that's when I started creating courses and then workshops and workshops led into events um, and it all very naturally happened, but it's because of students. Like when I look back at those intersections in our lives and connecting dots, it's because of students, those students in Tracy Mercier's class, those third graders and Tyler Clemente being a, a new, a relatively new mother, all at once happening. Ours, my reason is my why. And I definitely started in a reactive place, but I have evolved from instead of being reactive to be proactive, as many have in this space for digital citizenship. But, you know, it has to go beyond that conversation of just being safe. 
sometimes it just starts and stops there. And now to be able to work with my son, as well as a, a, incredible people I've met around the world that want to learn side by side, that this is an intergenerational opportunity to say, how can we use technology and social media for social good? How can we solve real problems in local, global, and digital communities that have this like ripple effect? You know, I make I make a change here in my community. It, it's like skipping stones. It has that ripple. You're inspired by it. And you say, I can do that here in my community. I mean, that's really, that's like how it's all evolved. Um, uh, I'm just sitting here listening to you because I've heard so many stories. In fact, when my son was in high school, it was a Catholic high school, three of his friends committed suicide. And I can tell you the fear as a mother, knowing that sometimes your child might be thinking something too. I can't imagine, you know, when you, when you're doing this, it, it's, you can't help it as a mother feel that way. You, you, I can't imagine what those mothers went through or parents. And so I just love that you're doing all of this. And so you, you have dig sit, kids is that what it's called so that's really interesting so that started um when my son was in the third grade we were both invited to give a tedx youth talk and while we were there he said mom i'm the youngest kid like everybody else is in high school or they're adults this is supposed to be a youth event everybody's waiting too long to talk to kids oh and he said, why aren't kids, why do adults, like every, he was like, everybody there was talking about the power of student voice, but he saw them all as older, you know, the older adolescents, the high schoolers and the adults. Why aren't younger students inspiring other students? Why is it adults talking about student voice? Hmm. And so at the same time, I was kind of making a transition from um, at the world of academia. So I had been promoted to um, associate professor with tenure, which is a pretty significant amount of work. I'm very proud of what I did, but it didn't define me. I needed to, I had a bigger classroom. I had larger things I needed to do beyond my, I'd pushed the envelope as far as I could for 10 years on my college campus. And I was starting to do this entrepreneurial, bringing up this digital citizenship Institute. And then I got, he just got interested in this, this idea of starting your own company. So he started DigSit Kids, which was uh, digital citizenship. He was nine. Digital citizenship for kids by kids so that kids were inspiring and empowering other kids. And they were sharing, yeah, sharing their voice, solving real problems, and then empowering others to do the same. Oh and my so, gosh. This is yes. amazing. Is it still going strong? Yes. In fact, I have to tell you, we just published our book through Edumatch. Oh! We didn't, we didn't just tell our story. We invited contributing authors to tell their stories so that, you know, the overall message is it doesn't matter where you live or what language you speak or what religion you might practice or traditions to, um, or, you know, your culture, your food, your... What well, doesn't really matter because um, we're one world and one human race and we're all in this together. And that power of learning side by side 
and saying I'm a learner before I'm anything else. And that I have a responsibility, not this isn't just something we do at school, something we do at home. And not only for the adults at home as parents, but when I go to work, gosh, I have a responsibility. I've got to do, I, I have to be different. You know, I have to be mindful. Um, and we're really kind of looking at some mindsets about being empathetic and, 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 and compassionate, being entrepreneurial, solving some problems. Uh, one that's really important to us is being inclusive, that everybody's got a seat at that table and it's accessible, you know, access for all. Um, and then innovative, thinking of things before there is a problem. And so if we had those four mindsets, and this, I feel like that's what the book does, it shows those four mindsets in action around the world. Oh my goodness. I'm so that's going to that's gonna be uh, our session at ISTE. Karen and I are putting on a, a Did Sit Kids session at ISTE about the book. Oh, well, we have to put, okay, we're going to put the book, a picture of the book, a link to EduMatch so where they can get it, and a link to your session because we're going to get this up before ISTE so people can go. And oh, I'm wonderful. Like, yeah, he said, I can, you know, um, I'm very close with my son. And I can tell you, I, I have a daughter and a son, so I'm very lucky. Um, but my son is there, you know, guiding me and helping me. And what I find is that we're so lucky we can even model being a parent and having a child that is, believes in you because many children just have their own lives and they don't even know what the parents are doing or care. Oh yeah. We've been, I mean, it's really been a blessing. We've been able to travel together and work with communities you should really change that narrative instead of telling kids, don't do this, don't do that, avoid this, this is bad. You know, that we're talking about changing those don't statements to I will statements and to share how we've done it. And our story really started offline. It started as, you know, really, we had this explorer's backpack and we went on adventures and ah. it had nothing to do with being online. And and then from going on these adventures, how we could then together, we had a blog that we would share out with families. That's really how our story began. And then, like I said, he, he came to class with me when I couldn't have a babysitter, but I did this. We had a really, it was, it was not a great thing that happened on my campus, some decisions on social media. And I wanted to take a real negative and turn it into a positive. So I did this project called The Tweet Heard Around the World as a direct result of what happened with my undergrads. And I wanted to see if a tweet, we could get a tweet around the world. And we did in 24 hours. And at the time, I want to say it was like in kindergarten. And the dinging of the computer, and we'd have like a new location. And I would say, oh, we just got Argentina. And he would go, we got Argentina. And then he'd go, where's Argentina? And I, I literally pulled out my first map from 1993 that I had on my wall as a classroom teacher. He literally got into the map and would find all these locations. And he was telling you, I mean, it was the best geography lesson. So I, it just very naturally developed. Um, ah. And it was all out of curiosity, wonder, and awe. And I can't think of a better reason for a story to begin, you know? Oh, well, I have to pull this together because I only have so much time. And we're going to follow <laughs> up because I am, I just love your story. And I love, I can't wait to meet her and, <laughs> and talk to him. I just, and I want to get the book and we're going to share it out. So this has just been wonderful. Wonderful. Oh my gosh. I think it was, I, I thank you so much for 
taking the time and and just not just who you are, but what you re represent uh, to so many people. Ah, oh, thank you, Mary Alice. I, I here's the thing: when you find certain people, you go, "I got to talk to her." I mean, there oh, was a right. you know, I knew that, and you reached out, and I said, "Oh my gosh, she reached out to me!" I can't believe it. <laughs> That's when we'll have to give out the shout out to Joanne Jacobs because yeah, yeah, she, and Eileen. I feel like Eileen is another reason why. Yes. Oh. And I'm staying with Eileen. I love Eileen. She's like my other sister. She's, it's I, Eileen Winokur, Alzaid, and Joanne Jacobs, both of them together. Mm. I love them. But you're, now it's the four of us. <laughs> I love it. I think it's fantastic. Eileen and I are actually presenting together at ISD. I didn't know that. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, we'll talk more. Thank All right, you wonderful. so Thank much. You so much. Oh, this was wonderful. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Mary Alice BFX Curran. Look for a complimentary blog post about Mary Alice with resources and links just for you. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. We also like you to tweet out the post with the hashtag Rethink underscore learning. You can also subscribe to my website, barbabray.net, to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.